Chapter Fifteen of the Spoilers by Rex Beach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Fifteen, Vigilantes. On the morning after the episode in the Northern, Glenister awoke under a weight of discouragement and desolation. The past twenty-four hours, with their manifold experiences, seemed distant and unreal. At breakfast he was ashamed to tell Dextry of the gambling debauch, for he had dealt treacherously with the old man in risking half of the mine, even though they had agreed that either might do as he chose with his interest, regardless of the other. It all seemed like a nightmare, those tense moments when he lay above the receiver's office and felt his belief in the one woman slipping away, the frenzied thirst which Cherry Malotte had checked, the senseless unreasoning lust for play that possessed him later. This lapse was the last stand of his old untamed instincts. The embers of revolt in him were dead. He felt that he would never again lose mastery of himself, that his passions would never best him hereafter. Dextry spoke. We had a meeting of the Stranglers last night. He always spoke of the vigilantes in that way because of his early Western training. What was done? They decided to act quick and do any odd jobs of lynching, claim jumping, or such as needs doing. There's a lot of law sharps and storekeepers in the bunch who figure McNamara's gang will wipe them off the map next. It was bound to come to this. They talked of ejecting the receiver's men and putting all of us fellers back on our minds. Good. How many can we count on to help us? About sixty. We've kept the number down and only take men with so much property that they'll have to keep their mouth shut. I wish we might engineer some kind of an encounter with the court crowd and create such an uproar that it would reach Washington. Everything else has failed, and our last chance seems to be for the government to step in. That is, unless Bill Wheaton can do something with the California courts. I don't count on him. McNamara don't care for California courts no more than he would for a boy with a pea-shooter. He's got too much pull at headquarters. If the Stranglers don't do no good... We'd better go in and clean out the bunch like we was killing snakes. If that fails, I'm going out to the States and be a doctor. A doctor? What for? I read somewhere that in the United States every year there is forty million gallons of whiskey used for medical purposes. Glenister laughed. Speaking of whiskey, Dex, I notice that you've been drinking pretty hard of late. That is hard for you. The old man shook his head. You're mistaken. It ain't hard for me. Well, hard or easy, you'd better cut it out. It was some time later that one of the detectives employed by the Swedes met Glenister on Front Street and by an almost imperceptible sign signified his desire to speak with him. When they were alone, he said, You're being shadowed. I've known that for a long time. The district attorney has put on some new men. I've fixed the woman who rooms next to him and through her I've got a line on some of them, but I haven't spotted them all. They are bad ones. Up-river men, mostly. Remnants of Soapy Smith's Skagway gang. They won't stop at anything. Thank you, I'll keep my eyes open. A few nights after, Glenister had reason to recall the words of the sleuth and to realize that the game was growing close and desperate. To reach his cabin, which sat on the outskirts of town, he ordinarily followed one of the plank walks which wound through the confusion of tents, warehouses, and cottages lying back of the two principal streets along the waterfront. This part of the city was not laid out in rectangular blocks, for in the early rush the first comers had seized whatever pieces of ground they found vacant 
and erected thereon some kind of buildings to make good their titles. There resulted a formless jumble of huts, cabins, and sheds, penetrated by no cross-streets and quite unlighted. At night one leaving the illuminated portion of the town found this darkness intensified. Glenister knew his course so well that he could have walked it blindfolded. Nearing a corner of the warehouse this evening, he remembered that the planking at this point was torn up, so, to avoid the mud, he leaped lightly across. Simultaneously with his jump he detected a movement in the shadows that banked the wall at his elbow, and saw the flaming spurt of a revolver shot. The man had crouched behind the building and was so close that it seemed impossible to miss. Glenister fell heavily upon his side and the thought flashed over him. McNamara's thugs have shot me. His assailant leaped out from his hiding-place and ran down the walk, the sound of his quick, soft footfalls thudding faintly out into the silence. The young man felt no pain, however, so scrambled to his feet, felt himself over with care, and then swore roundly. He was untouched. The other had missed him cleanly. The report, coming while he was in the act of leaping, had startled him so that he had lost his balance, slipped upon the wet boards, and fallen. His assailant was lost in the darkness before he could rise. Pursuit was out of the question, so he continued homeward, considerably shaken, and related the incident to Dextry. "'You think it was some of McNamara's work, eh?' Dextry inquired when he had finished. "'Of course. Didn't the detective warn me today?' Dextry shook his head. "'It don't seem like the game is that far along yet. The time is coming when we'll go to the mat with them people. But they've got the age on us now. So what could they gain by putting you away? I don't believe it's them, but whoever it is, you better be careful or you'll be got. Suppose we come home together after this, Roy suggested, and they arranged to do so, realizing that danger lurked in the dark corners and that it was in some such lonely spot that the deed would be tried again. They experienced no trouble for a time, though on nearing their cabin one night the younger man fancied that he saw a shadow glide away from its vicinity and out into the blackness of the tundra, as though someone had stood at his very door waiting for him then became frightened at the two figures approaching. Dextry had not observed it, however, and Glenister was not positive himself, but it served to give him the uncanny feeling that some determined, unscrupulous force was bent on his destruction. He determined to go nowhere unarmed. A few evenings later he went home early and was busied in writing when Dextry came in about ten o'clock. The old miner hung up his coat before speaking, lit a cigarette, inhaled deeply, then, amid mouthfuls of smoke, began. I had my own toes over the edge tonight. I was mistook for you, which compliment I don't aim to have repeated. Glenister questioned him eagerly. We're about the same height, and these hassars are alike. Just as I come by that lumber pile down yonder, a man hopped out and throwed a gat under my nose. He was quicker than light and near blowed my scalp into the next block, before he saw who I was. Then he dropped his whipping and said, my mistake. Go on. I accepted his apology. Could you see who he was? Sure. Yes. I can't. It was a bronco kid. Lord, ejaculated Glenister, do you think he's after me? He ain't after nobody else, and take my word for it, it's got nothing to do with McNamara nor that gambling row. He's too game for that. There's some other reason. This was the first mention Dextry had made of the night at the Northern. I don't know why he should have it in for me. I never did him any favors, Glenister remarked cynically. Well, you watch out, anyhow. I'd sooner face McNamara 
and all the crooks he can hire than that gambler. During the next few days Roy undertook to meet the proprietor of the Northern face to face, but the kid had vanished completely from his haunts. He was not in his gambling hall at night nor on the street by day. The young man was still looking for him on the evening of the dance at the hotel when he chanced to meet one of the vigilantes, who inquired of him, "'Aren't you late for the meeting?' "'What meeting?' After seeing that they were alone, the other stated, "'There's an assembly tonight at eleven o'clock. Something important, I think. I supposed, of course, you knew about it.' "'It's strange I wasn't notified,' said Roy. "'It's probably an oversight. I'll go along with you.' Together they crossed the river to the less frequented part of town and knocked at the door of a large unlighted warehouse flanked by a high-board fence. The building faced the street, but was enclosed on the other three sides by this ten-foot wall, inside of which were stored large quantities of coal and lumber. After some delay they were admitted, and passing down through the dim-lit, high-banked lanes of merchandise, came to the rear room where they were admitted again. This compartment had been fitted up for the warm storage of perishable goods during the cold weather, and being without windows made an ideal place for clandestine gatherings. Glenister was astonished to find every man of the organization present, including Dextry, whom he supposed to have gone home an hour since. Evidently a discussion had been in progress, for a chairman was presiding and the boxes, kegs, and bales of goods had been shoved back against the walls for seats. On these were ranged the threescore men of the Stranglers, their serious faces lighted imperfectly by scattered lanterns. A certain constraint seized them upon Glenister's entrance. The chairman was embarrassed. It was but momentary, however. Glenister himself felt that tragedy was in the air, for it showed in the men's attitudes and spoke eloquently from their strained faces. He was about to question the man next to him when the presiding officer continued, "'We will assemble here quietly with our arms at one o'clock, and let me caution you again not to talk nor do anything to scare the birds away. Glenister arose. I came late, Mr. Chairman, so I missed hearing your plan. I gather that you're out for business, however, and I want to be in it. May I ask what is on foot? Certainly. Things have reached such a pass that moderate means are useless. We have decided to act, and act quickly. We have exhausted every legal resource, and now we're going to stamp out this gang of robbers in our own way." We will get together in an hour, divide into three groups of twenty men, each with a leader, then go to the houses of McNamara, Stillman, and Voorhees, take them prisoners, and—' He waved his hand in a large gesture. Glenister made no answer for a moment while the crowd watched him intently. "'You have discussed this fully?' he asked. "'We have. It has been voted on, and we're unanimous.' "'My friends, when I stepped into this room just now, I felt that I wasn't wanted.' why i don't know because i have had more to do with organizing this movement than any of you and because i have suffered just as much as the rest i want to know if i was omitted from this meeting intentionally this is an embarrassing position to put me in said the chairman gravely but i shall answer as spokesman for these men if they wish yes go ahead said those around the room we don't question your loyalty mr glenister but we didn't ask you to this meeting because we know your attitude. Perhaps I'd better say sentiment regarding Judge Stillman's niece, or family. It has come to us from various scores that you have been affected to the prejudice of your own and your partner's interest. Now there isn't going to be any sentiment in the affairs of the vigilantes. We are going to do justice, 
and we thought the simplest way was to ignore you in this matter and spare all discussion and hard feeling in every quarter. "'It's a lie!' shouted the young man hoarsely. "'A damned lie! You wouldn't let me in for fear I'd kick, eh? Well, you were right. I will kick. You've hinted about my feelings for Miss Chester. Let me tell you that she's engaged to marry McNamara, and that she's nothing to me. Now then, let me tell you further that you won't break into her house and hang her uncle, even if he is a reprobate. No, sir. This isn't the time for violence of that sort. We'll win without it. If we can't win, let's fight like men, and not hunt in a pack like wolves. If you want to do something, put us back on our minds and help us hold them, but for God's sake don't descend to assassination and the tactics of the mafia. We knew you would make that kind of a talk said the speaker, while the rest murmured grudgingly. One of them spoke up. We've talked this over in cold blood, Glenester, and it's a question of their lives or our liberty. The law don't enter into it. That's right, echoed another at his elbow. We can't seize the claims because McNamara's got soldiers to back him up. They'd shoot us down. You ought to be the last one to object. He saw that dispute was futile. Determination was stamped on their faces too plainly for mistake and his argument had no more effect on them than had the pale rays of the lantern beside him. Yet he continued, "'I don't deny that McNamara deserves lynching, but Stillman doesn't. He's a weak old man,' someone laughed derisively, "'and there's a woman in the house. He's all she has in the world to depend upon, and you would have to kill her to get at him. If you must follow this course, take the others, but leave him alone.' They only shook their heads while several pushed by him, even as he spoke. "'We're going to distribute our favors equal,' said a man as he left. They were actuated by what they called justice, and he could not sway them. The life and welfare of the North were in their hands, as they thought, and there was not one to hesitate. Glenister implored the chairman, but the man answered him. "'It's too late for further discussion, and let me remind you of your promise.' you're bound by every obligation that exists for an honorable man. Oh, don't think that I'll give the snap away, said the other, but I warn you again not to enter Stillman's house. He followed out into the night to find that Dextry had disappeared, evidently wishing to avoid argument. Roy had seen signs of unrest beneath the prospector's restraint during the past few days, and indications of a fierce hunger to vent his spleen on the men who had robbed him of his most sacred rights. He was of an intolerant, vindictive nature that would go to any length for vengeance. Retribution was part of his creed. On his way home the young man looked at his watch to find that he had but an hour to determine his course. Instinct prompted him to join his friends and to even the score with the men who had injured him so bitterly, for measured by standards of the frontier they were pirates with their lives forfeit. Yet he could not countenance this step. If only the vigilantes would be content with making an example, but he knew they would not. The blood-hunger of a mob is easy to wet and hard to hold. McNamara would resist, as would Voorhees and the district attorney. Then there would be bloodshed, riot, chaos. The soldiers would be called out and martial law declared. The streets would become skirmish grounds. The vigilantes would rout them without question, for every citizen of the North would rally to their aid and such men could not be stopped. The judge would go down with the rest of the ring, and what would happen to her? He took down his Winchester, oiled and cleaned it, then buckled on a belt of cartridges. Still he wrestled with himself. 
He felt that he was being ground between his loyalty to the vigilantes and his own conscience. The girl was one of the gang, he reasoned. She had schemed with them to betray him through his love, and she was pledged to the one man in the world whom he hated with fanatical fury. Why should he think of her in this hour? Six months back he would have looked with jealous eyes upon the right to lead the vigilantes, but this change that had mastered him. What was it? Not cowardice, nor caution. No, yet being intangible it was none the less marked, as his friends had shown him an hour since. He slipped out into the night. The mob might do as it pleased elsewhere, but no man should enter her house. He found a light shining from her parlor window, and, noting the shade up a few inches, stole close. Peering through he discovered Struve and Helen talking. He slunk back into the shadows and remained hidden for a considerable time after the lawyer left, for the dancers were returning from the hotel and passed close by. When the last group had chattered away down the street he returned to the front of the house and, mounting the steps, knocked sharply. As Helen appeared at the door he stepped inside and closed it after him. The girl's hair lay upon her neck and shoulders in tumbled brown masses, while her breast heaved tumultuously at the sudden grim sight of him. She stepped back against the wall, her wondrous deep gray eyes wide and troubled, the blush of modesty struggling with the pallor of dismay. The picture pained him like a knife-thrust. This girl was for his bitterest enemy. No hope of her was for him. He forgot for a moment that she was false and plotting then recalling it, spoke as roughly as he might, and stated his errand. Then the old man had appeared on the stairs above, speechless with fright at what he overheard. It was evident that his nerves, so sorely strained by the events of the past week, were now snapped utterly. A human soul, naked and panic-stricken, is no pleasant sight. So Glenister dropped his eyes and addressed the girl again. "'Don't take anything with you. Just dress and come with me.' The creature on the stairs above stammered and stuttered inquiringly. "'What outrage is this, Mr. Glenister? The people of Nome are up in arms, and I've come to save you. Don't stop to argue.' He spoke impatiently. "'Is this some ruse to get me into your power?' "'Uncle Arthur!' exclaimed the girl sharply. Her eyes met Glenister's and begged him to take no offense. "'I don't understand this atrocity. They must be mad,' wailed the judge." You run over to the jail, Mr. Glenister, and tell Voorhees to hurry guards here to protect me. Helen, phone to the military post and give the alarm. Tell them the soldiers must come at once. Hold on, said Glenister. There's no use of doing that. The wires are cut, and I won't notify Voorhees. He can take care of himself. I came to help you, and if you want to escape you'll stop talking and hurry up. I don't know what to do, said Stillman, torn by terror and indecision. You wouldn't hurt an old man, would you? wait, I'll be down in a minute. He scrambled up the stairs, tripping on his robe, seemingly forgetting his niece, till she called up to him sharply. Stop, Uncle Arthur, you mustn't run away. She stood erect and determined. You wouldn't do that, would you? This is our house. You represent the law and the dignity of the government. You mustn't fear a mob of ruffians. We will stay here and meet them, of course. Good Lord, said Glenister, that's madness. These men aren't ruffians. They are the best citizens of Nome. You don't realize that this is Alaska and that they have sworn to wipe out McNamara's gang. Come along. Thank you for your good intentions, she said, but we have done nothing to run away from. We will get ready to meet these cowards. You had better go, or they will find you here. 
She moved up the stairs, and taking the judge by the arm led him with her. Of a sudden she had assumed control of the situation unfalteringly, and both men felt the impossibility of thwarting her. Pausing at the top she turned and looked down. "'We are grateful for your efforts just the same. Good night.' "'Oh, I'm not going,' said the young man. "'If you stick, I'll do the same.' He made the rounds of the first-floor rooms, locking doors and windows. As a place of defense it was hopeless, and he saw that he would have to make his stand upstairs. When sufficient time had elapsed he called up to Helen. "'May I come?' "'Yes,' she replied. So he ascended to find Stillman in the hall, half-clothed and cowering, while by the light from the front chamber he saw her finishing her toilet. "'Won't you come with me? It's our last chance.' She only shook her head. "'Well, then, put out the light.' I'll stand at that front window, and when my eyes get used to the darkness I'll be able to see them before they reach the gate." She did as directed, taking her place beside him at the opening, while the judge crept in and sat upon the bed, his heavy breathing the only sound in the room. The two young people stood so close beside each other that the sweet scent of her person awoke in him an almost irresistible longing. He forgot her treachery again, forgot that she was another's forgot all save that he loved her truly and purely, with a love which was like an agony to him. Her shoulder brushed his arm. He heard the soft rustling of her garment at her breast as she breathed. Someone passed in the street, and she laid a hand upon him fearfully. It was very cold, very tiny, and very soft, but he made no move to take it. The moments dragged along, still, tense, interminable. Occasionally she leaned towards him, and he stooped to catch her whispered words. At such times her breath beat warm against his cheek, and he closed his teeth stubbornly. Out in the night a wolf-dog sat in the air. Then came the sound of others wrangling and snarling in a nearby corral. This is a checklist land, and no cock-crow breaks the midnight peace. The suspense enhanced the judge's perturbation till his chattering teeth sounded like castanets. Now and then he groaned. The watchers had lost track of time when their strained eyes detected dark blots materializing out of the shadows. "'There they come,' whispered Glenister, forcing her back from the aperture. But she would not be denied, and returned to his side. As the foremost figures reached the gate, Roy leaned forth and spoke, not loudly, but in tones that sliced through the silence, sharp, clean, and without warning. "'Halt! Don't come inside the fence!' There was an instant's confusion. Then, before the men beneath had time to answer or take action, he continued, "'This is Roy Glenister talking. I told you not to molest these people, and I warn you again. We're ready for you.' The leader spoke. "'You're a traitor, Glenister.' He winced. "'Perhaps I am. You betrayed me first, though, and traitor or not, you can't come into this house.' There was a murmur at this, and someone said, Miss Chester is safe. All we want is the judge. We won't hang him, not if he'll wear this suit we brought along. He needn't be afraid. Tar is good for the skin. Oh, my God! groaned the limb of the law. Suddenly a man came running down the plank pavement and into the group. McNamara's gone, and so's the marshal and the rest, he panted. There was a moment's silence, and then the leader growled to his men, Scatter out and rush the house, boys. He raised his voice to the man in the window. This is your work, you damned turncoat. His followers melted away to right and left, vaulted the fence, 
and dodged into the shelter of the walls. The click-click of Glenister's Winchester sounded through the room while the sweat stood out on him. He wondered if he could do this deed, if he could really fire on these people. He wondered if his muscles would not wither and paralyze before they obeyed his command. Helen crowded past him and, leaning half out of the opening, called loudly, her voice ringing clear and true. "'Wait! Wait a moment! I have something to say! Mr. Glenister didn't warn them. They thought you were going to attack the mines, and so they rode out there before midnight. I am telling you the truth, really. They left hours ago.' It was the first sign she had made, and they recognized her to a man. There were uncertain mutterings below till a new man raised his voice. Both Roy and Helen recognized Dextry. "'Boys, we've overplayed. We don't want these people. McNamara's army. Old Baldface up yonder has to do what he's told, and I'm again this twenty-to-one midnight work. I'm going home.' There were some whisperings, then the original spokesman called for Judge Stillman. The old man tottered to the window, a palsied, terror-stricken object. The girl was glad he could not be seen from below. "'We won't hurt you this time, Judge.' but you've gone far enough. We'll give you another chance, then. If you don't make good, we'll stretch you to a lamp-post. Take this as a warning. I shall do my duty, said the judge. The men disappeared into the darkness, and when they had gone, Glenister closed the window, pulled down the shades, and lighted a lamp. He knew by how narrow a margin a tragedy had been averted. If he had fired on these men, his shot would have kindled a feud which would have consumed every vestige of the court crowd and himself among them. He would have fallen under a false banner, and his life would not have reached to the next sunset. Perhaps it was forfeit now. He could not tell. The vigilantes would probably look upon his part as traitorous, and, at the very least, he had cut himself off from their support, the only support the Northland offered him. Henceforth he was a renegade, a pariah, hated alike by both factions. He purposely avoided sight of Stillman, and turned his back when the judge extended his hand with expressions of gratitude. His work was done, and he wished to leave this house. Helen followed him down to the door, and, as he opened it, laid her hand upon his sleeve. "'Words are feeble things, and I can never make amends for all you've done for us.' "'For us?' cried Roy, with a break in his voice. Do you think I sacrificed my honor, betrayed my friends, killed my last hope, ostracized myself? For us? This is the last time I'll trouble you. Perhaps the last time I'll see you. No matter what else you've done, however, you've taught me a lesson, and I thank you for it. I have found myself at last. I'm not an Eskimo any longer. I'm a man. You've always been that, she said. I don't understand as much about this affair as I want to and it seems to me that no one will explain it. I'm very stupid, I guess, but won't you come back tomorrow and tell it to me? No, he said roughly. You're not of my people. McNamara and his are no friends of mine, and I'm no friend of theirs. He was half down the steps before she said softly, Good night, and God bless, friend. She returned to the judge, who was in a pitiable state, and for a long time she labored to soothe him as though he were a child. She undertook to question him about the things which lay uppermost in her mind, and which this night had half revealed, but he became fretful and irritated at the mention of mines and mining. She sat beside his bed till he dozed off, puzzling to discover what lay behind the hints she had heard, till her brain and body matched in absolute weariness. 
The reflex of the day's excitement sapped her strength till she could barely creep to her own couch, where she rolled and sighed, too tired to sleep at once. She awoke finally with one last nervous flicker, before complete oblivion took her. A sentence was on her mind. It almost seemed as though she had spoken it aloud. The handsomest woman in the North. But Glenister ran away. End of chapter 15 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.